This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Tuesday, January the 18th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. We're humbled. We're honored Honored every single day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the live show. If you can't listen to the whole thing or can maybe only catch part of it or none of it for whatever reason, schedule conflicts, that's fine. We have a podcast. That is free after the show is over. It's on demand every day, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com. G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N Show.com. It's that easy. And you can sign up there or wherever you get your free podcasts. On today's radio show, Molly Hemingway will be here later this hour. Andy McCarthy in the next hour. And Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins in our final hour, I am particularly eager to have that conversation with the doctor, who is now advising Glenn Youngkin, the new Virginia governor, who's under fire from the media and the left. Surprise, surprise. And I want to ask McCary about some of that criticism from a medical standpoint. I will describe those critiques and respond to some of them here in just a moment. Programming note on special report tonight, I'll be part of the panel, Brett Bayer hosting, 6 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. In the latter part of the hour, it'll be myself and Hugh Hewitt and Mara Liason. I hope you'll have an opportunity to tune in on the TV side for that. Meanwhile, here, a Fox News alert as we get going. Case count, cumulatively. On COVID in the United States, 66.5 million and climbing, the real number is much higher. I see that they finally have the website up where you can order your four free rapid tests and you will get those in 7 to 12 days by the time Omicron is likely in the rearview mirror as a huge spike. And if you have symptoms now, the symptoms will almost certainly be gone in 7 to 12 days. So... The government right on top of things as usual. That's the case count. The death toll in the United States, people. Pandemic, 850,750 Americans. It's an astonishing number. Even if any significant chunk of that is people dying with COVID, it's still just a staggering figure. The Dow is struggling today, down 445 points at this hour, a big market sell-off, a lot of red on the big board right now. We'll keep an eye on that number. Currently, the Dow is trading at 35,462, down, as I said, roughly 450 points right now, and there are 51 minutes to go in the trading day up on Wall Street. 
So in Virginia, I guess one of the traditions is after the new governor gets sworn in, which is what Yunkin did on Saturday, he gives an address to the legislature. And Yunkin did that down in Richmond. He had a number of things to say, including offering this message to parents. And it's something you've heard from him before. He said it in his inaugural address. He said it over and over again on the campaign trail. It's part of why he won. But what's intriguing to me in this clip that you're about to hear are the visuals that I will describe to you as soon as you hear cut 24. My message to parents is this. You have a fundamental right enshrined in law by this General Assembly to make decisions with regard to your child's upbringing, education, and care. And we will protect and reassert that right. So, big ovation, you can hear the applause, standing ovation, in fact, in about half of the chamber. But the other half of the chamber, where the Democrats were sitting, they just sat there in stone-faced silence, sitting on their hands, not only no standing ovation, not even a smattering of applause from the Democrats down in Richmond. And all Yunkin did was say parents have a fundamental right to be involved in the upbringing and education of their own kids. And we're going to protect that in Virginia. Standing ovation from the Republicans, nothing. Crickets from the Democrats. He also pointed out that those rights are enshrined in law, and he's right. Under the Virginia statutes, parents have exactly those rights. It's written down. But the Democrats were very grumpy about that and just sat there. Now, look, I know sometimes, like, during the State of the Union, for example, people play these games. Oh, so-and-so said that he loved golden retriever puppies, and the other party wouldn't even clap for puppies, right? This is sometimes how these things go. I just find it very interesting that the Democrats just got their asses handed to them in Virginia, largely because of parents being angry, school closures, some of the the sexual cover-ups that we found out about in Loudoun, critical race theory and racialized curricula and indoctrination and the gaslighting about that. The Democrats could not have been any more contemptuous of parents. In fact, Terry McAuliffe, their standard bearer, said that anyone who was concerned about those things were bigots and racists and engaged in dog whistles. And he brought in the mastermind of school closures, the muscle, the enforcement arm of the Democratic Party, the teachers' unions, specifically Randy Weingarten, to campaign with him on the stump on the final day of the election. While Youngkin was talking about parents and schools being open and having more transparency, and he won in a blue state that Joe Biden carried a year earlier by 10 points. Parental rights and the involvement of parents were a fulcrum point in the election in Virginia. And here are the Democrats who just lost on this issue. They don't even have the wherewithal to recognize maybe we should clap for the idea that parents have control over their own kids' lives. They couldn't bring themselves to do it because in their mind, it's bad. 
And it's Yunkin saying it, a dreaded Republican. So I found that to be interesting. Comes on the heels, of course, of that little misfire, if you want to call it that, in Michigan that we addressed yesterday with Corey DeAngelis, where the Michigan Democratic Party put up this anti-parent screed, this meme, saying the purpose of public education is not to teach kids what parents want them to be taught, it is to teach them what society needs them to know. The client of the public schools is not the parents, they said it's society at large. And they said if people want to go to a private school, that's their choice. Well, a lot of people can't afford that, which is why school choice advocates say let's have the dollars follow students, not these government systems. But, of course, the Democrats oppose that, too. So they posted that, the Democrats of Michigan, and then they realized a day later, oh, that's not a good look. What happened in Virginia? And they deleted the post and clarified that's not what they meant. They meant the opposite, (laughs) if you want to believe them on that. So right now, as I mentioned yesterday, there's a fight already playing out. It's broken out in Virginia with some of these deep blue counties that were a little bit less deep blue because of Yunkin, because of the parents' issues, but still deep blue counties in Virginia. They are now back to a resistance footing, right? When it's Republicans and executive orders and Republicans making decisions, it's, you know, all hands on deck, five alarm fire, no resist, resist. But it's like the tablets coming down from the word of God if it's a Democrat doing it. So they're saying, we are not going to allow the governor to, through executive order, empower parents to make decisions about masks for their kids in schools. Everyone's going to have to wear them. And there's a fight now about who has the right here, who's in the right legally. The Democrats in these counties say, well, there's a line in one law that was recently passed that says we have to follow or can follow CDC guidance. And, of course, CDC guidance is awful. And, I mean, it it's, should be the gold standard. It's not. And then you've got the, the governor's authority on the other hand. There's also the scientific questions, the medicine questions behind this stuff. It's complicated. Jonathan Turley, law professor at GW, he thinks that there could be some pitfalls for the Democrats in court, particularly defending it on the substantive scientific basis. But the line of the one statute that they put into a bill recently that became law, that could be the hook that they hang on to here and successfully, at least to some extent, resist what Yunkin has done. We'll see. But that's what's going on in Arlington, in Alexandria, these deep blue areas. And this could be coming to a purple area near you. That's why I think what's playing out here is so interesting. In fact, as I briefly mentioned yesterday in Alexandria, a very liberal place, they announced not only... Are we going to defy the executive order on parental choice on masks? We are going to double down and make a new requirement for a specific kind of mask on children. Now, there's an irony in all of this. There's a writer named Zaid Jelani who observed yesterday the following. Virginia has no statewide mask mandate. Kids are running around with parents at sporting events and restaurants where people wear masks less than 1% of their time there, walking to a table, all sorts of gatherings. The school mask mandate is an odd, politicized carve-out. He's talking about Virginia. Like everywhere else, there's no mask mandate. Everyone's living their life, doing various things in Virginia, but there's a politicized carve-out only in schools 
or specifically in schools. He notes correctly, unvaccinated children have lower death rates from COVID than vaccinated adults. Any kid over five can get a vaccine in Virginia. There are so many shots, we can't give them all away. If school masking is to protect staff and kids, why did Virginia lift its statewide indoor mask mandate months ago? That's under the last administration, under the Democrats. Why do they do that? And why haven't they reinstated the indoor mask mandate? Only in schools has this policy been in place. Home to the population at lowest risk from COVID. And even lower now in the age of Omicron. It just makes no sense We'll talk to Dr. McCary about this later on, because he's a top advisor now to Yunkin. I will ask him point by point some of the criticisms and get his response. And this writer, Jelani, concludes with this point. And this is exactly right. He says, also, Arlington schools in Virginia, just outside of D.C., were closed for a whole extra week for snow. I would also add, because of staffing shortage, a lot of it on snow, it was snow plus other stuff. They didn't even do any Zoom school during that week. It's true. They just closed the school like Chicago just did during the strike, the teacher strike. There was no virtual learning. It was just schools canceled. Again, more learning loss. The snow was cleared up in a couple days. What did Arlington school authorities think the kids were doing that week? What they were doing was running around in their communities without masks on, which is fine. Then they've all come back into school where all of a sudden... That, based on like this leftist religion, that's the one place where it is crucial that all these little kids wear cloth face coverings over their mouths and nose all day long for no established scientific benefit. Even though there are established real concerns about developmental harm done to kids, a solution that doesn't even work, that is actually harmful to kids much more than it helps based on actual data. That is what the fight is about, and the so-called pro-science people are the ones on the opposite side of the data, but they have never been more sure of themselves or more self-righteous and more willing to call their opponents baby killers or whatever. And something that's occurred to me throughout this fight, seeing these people screaming and posting in all caps on Twitter and Facebook and their next door groups and their, you know, their online discussion forums and all this stuff. These are the same people who were dead wrong about schools being closed, who advocated school closures and continue to defend school closures for more than a year long after the data showed that it was a disaster for kids, wasn't working, and wasn't justified in the pandemic. Based on everything that we knew and were finding out, they stuck to that failed, catastrophic policy that was absolutely, deep, deeply harmful to kids. It's that same crew leading the charge with their self-righteous indignation on masking, with the exact same zealotry and self-assurance, even though they were disastrously dead wrong on a very related topic. Not a decade ago, last year. I mean, take a seat, guys. Take a seat. But they won't. And they think they're the righteous ones. They're the sciency ones.
They're fighting the good fight for the kids. But don't bother them with data. Don't you dare ask them for data. Daily Caller tried to do that with Arlington Public Schools. Hey, uh, where's your data justifying this? And they accidentally CC'd the response, including the reporter. They're like, uh, let's not engage in this. It's not in our interest to engage in this. So that's what's happening in Virginia. And these are the types of battles that are going to keep playing out. And you need the people who are actually pro-data to stand up and wage the fights and make the case, which is what we try to do here. And we're proud of Yunkin for doing it in the early days. But you know, the pushback is here. It arrived instantly. And some of it is just totally unhinged. We'll get to that in just a second as soon as we return. (laughs) Uh, Wait till you hear this. It's the new DeSantis syndrome in Virginia. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're going to build partnerships between the Commonwealth and our great universities to create lab schools of excellence. It could be a lab school in Southwest Virginia in partnership with UVA Wise. It could be an entrepreneurship or entertainment industry focused school partnering with one of our amazing historically black colleges and universities or a partnership with Old Dominion University. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was Governor Yunkin speaking to the legislature. And I just played that clip because it was totally anodyne, nothing problematic at all. But there's always outrage about everything. So the senior Democratic senator, Louise Lucas, tweeted that clip and said in all caps, how dare you? HBCU students, historically black colleges and universities, students are not the entertainment industry. As a graduate of Norfolk State, I cannot believe this came out of the mouth of a Virginia governor. Governor owes us an apology immediately. It's like words. What do they mean? He didn't say anything close to what she's alleging. It's in the clip that's in her tweet. But it's all caps saying that like black colleges are the entertainment industry. It's not what he said. Not even close. Like, it's embarrassing. It reflects poorly on Norfolk State. Maybe, like, words have meaning. Maybe we need some remedial listening for this, Senator. There are also lefties mocking Glenn Youngkin for taking the most recent snowstorm that he was actually governor for too seriously, unlike the last guy. Too seriously. Everything's a problem now for Glenn Youngkin. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free every day. Joining us now is Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of two best-selling books. And Molly, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. It's great to be here with you. I just opened the program today with a monologue on what's happening here in Virginia and the resistance to Glenn Youngkin on masks. We have Dr. McCary joining us later in the show. Also, some of the ridiculous, unhinged attacks on Youngkin already based on nothing, right? They're claiming that he said something in his speech to the legislature that he didn't say, and there's video of it. They're making fun of him for taking the snowstorm too seriously. I mean, it's like we're getting the Ron DeSantis effect in Virginia against Youngkin, where they're just going to try to problemize everything for four years and the first major front 
in terms of a real battle that means something is on schools and masking and parental choice. And at the risk of boring people who do not live in the D.C. area or who do not live in Virginia, to me, I think it is an important fight in terms of national stakes as well. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that, why this matters to people who aren't just Virginia residents like you and I happen to be, and then also just how you feel this is shaping up so far. Yeah, it's really one thing if the far left acts hysterical about a Republican politician who at least gives some reason to act hysterical, but to do it with Glenn Youngkin, who's a fairly moderate dude who campaigned, uh, yes, as a conservative, but as a very sort of centrist conservative. When you act hysterical about him doing things that are largely popular nationwide, you just sound crazy. And so that's what's happened in these first few days of the Young Kid administration is the reaction to him just sounds a bit unhinged. But I think this is a national issue, whether to mask children, whether to force the masking of children. And it it sounds crazy to people nationwide that this would even be an issue. But here in Virginia, where the northern Virginia area is really controlled by the base of the Democrat Party, it actually is kind of controversial to say that parents should be free to decide whether or not their children, you know, who may have hearing problems or developmental disabilities or health reasons or claustrophobia, you know, any number of reasons. It's kind of controversial to say that parents should be allowed to make their own decisions. And I think it shows how the Democrat Party is not served well by its base, which is increasingly of the fringe, because they're, they begin advocating for things that most of the country thinks are absurd, like the forced masking of children with no way for parents to check out of that system. So here's another example from New York City. And I saw there was a school social worker who tweeted this yesterday, Justin Spiro. He got a screen grab of a basketball broadcast in New York. This was a Knicks game. So I see Walt, uh, Walt Frazier's there. It looks like Mike Breen on play-by-play, the two broadcasters. And sitting between them, courtside, doing an interview during the broadcast, is the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. And they're all unmasked. They're all you know, smiling and looking like they're having a nice time. And what this school worker, this school social worker notes is this. Mayor Adams is having fun with 20,000 maskless friends at a Knicks game today. Tomorrow, he will force three-year-olds to mask for speech therapy and kindergartners to mask for recess outdoors. Adult recreation, once again, takes precedence over children's developmental needs. And then there's this, this photo that kind of speaks for itself. And I'm not saying that Adams is a hypocrite because he's not wearing a mask indoors because... The way that it works, I guess, at Madison Square Garden is you have to show that you're vaccinated and then you can go in. So he's not technically breaking the rules. What I'm saying is the rules are incoherent. We have kindergartners outdoors wearing masks based on zero science. But adults can sort of yuck it up and have a great time indoors at a sporting event, all packed into an arena. And these kids are outside in masks and struggling with masks during things like speech therapy. It makes no sense, Molly. And for people who live in very red areas, this has not been in red states. This has not been anything close to their lives for months and months and months. And, you know, I, I envy them on that front. But for tens of millions of Americans, 
this is the type of thing that we're confronting every day, and it's driving a lot of people crazy, uh, very much on both sides, but the, the neurosis seems to be winning in a lot of places still, despite the science. I have to say the thing that drives me crazy is when you see these photos of celebrities or wealthy people, elites of one kind or another, socializing without masks, of course, because why would they do that? But all the people serving them are wearing these masks and get-ups, and it just feels so icky and un-American to see that. But I think you really hit the nail on the head with pointing out there's no scientific basis for this. There have been multiple studies done. None show a statistically significant effect for forced masking children. I mean, there's there's a time and a place to wear masks, like in a in a surgical theater or in, you know in certain hospital situations. Um, but that time is not children in speech therapy in school. And it's we have seen so many negative things associated with this forced masking of children. And I could again see why some parents might choose to put one, two, three, four masks on their child, but that doesn't mean everybody should be forced to mask their children when there's no scientific case that this is in any way a good way to limit the transmission of what is clearly a global pandemic that is not stopping. Molly Hemingway, meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., the Senate Democrats seem to be just moving forward with this thing on so-called voting rights. They don't have the votes. They know they don't have the votes to pass Uh, this crazy scheme of theirs that is just packed with unpopular overreach. It has nothing to do with saving democracy. It's a power grab for their party. They also don't have the votes to kill the filibuster, which they want to do, that would then potentially allow them to pass it in a 50-50 Senate, a total rewrite of American election law. And uh, they're at least two votes shy of that. But for reasons that are just beyond me, Chuck Schumer and the Brain Trust has decided that they're going to force every senator on the record to vote for this um, and or, or against it. And I'd imagine that the Republicans are, are very pleased to sort of smoke out some of the Senate Democrats who have been strategically vague on this point. They're not going to have a choice if Schumer makes them vote on behalf of something that's not even going to get done just for some, I don't know, like catharsis, some sort of tantrum. And it looks like they're moving in that direction. And yesterday we were on the air. We didn't take the day off for MLK Day, but we did honor MLK Day. We had Juan Williams. We had a very good conversation. People can listen to that uh, on the podcast. But what the Democrats have been doing, and I saw this not just in their speeches, but all over social media on the left, they exploited Martin Luther King Day as an opportunity to shame anyone who doesn't agree with every element of their partisan agenda. Like, you're not allowed to share in the legacy or celebrate the legacy of an American hero if you don't agree with us on so-called voting rights. President Biden said it in cut three. And on this federal holiday that honors him, it's not just enough to praise him. We must commit to his unfinished work, to deliver jobs and justice, to protect the sacred right to vote, the right from which all other rights flow. And the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, got very dramatic, as she is wont to do, in Cut 22. If you really, truly want to honor Dr. King, don't dishonor him by using a congressional custom as an excuse for protecting our democracy. We have no right to honor this family, to visit the monument. Imagine 30, somewhat 36 years old, left this earth in such a way that he has a monument on the mall along with Abraham Lincoln, 
George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of them with tears in their eyes for the departure from our democracy that is happening right now, unless the truth is acknowledged and this legislation is passed. So unless we get rid of voter ID, unless we enshrine ballot harvesting, and unless we force people to fund the campaigns of politicians they don't like, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson will weep together with tears in their eyes because democracy will be dead. And if you don't support ending the filibuster to do that, you are You are dishonoring, this is what Pelosi just said, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Molly, it is so far over the top on an issue that most Americans really don't see as an emergency because it isn't one. That's the thing. It is disgusting what the rhetoric has been here and shameless. And people have not fought it enough because it's really an attack on the country. It's an attack on election integrity. The idea that we have any problem with voting rights following a year when, if anything, we had a problem with a flooding of the zone of insecure ballots is ludicrous to anybody paying attention. They can't find a single American, much less a class of people or a large group of people who have not been able to enjoy the right to vote. This is not 1964 Mississippi. Everybody knows it. And to try and incite race hatred over a topic when the only thing that some Republicans in some state legislatures are sort of meekly trying to do is make it slightly more difficult to cheat. There is no movement to suppress voting. There, and and that's, that's just demonstrably observed by looking at the numbers of how many tens of millions of people were able to vote. I mean, the idea that you're suppressing voting rights if you only offer 20 days of insecure early voting instead of six weeks is ludicrous. I mean, it's just nobody believes it, and it is shameful. It is just horrible to say, to try and use race you know, to stoke racial division on an issue that's so important. Americans need to trust their elections. They need to have secure, free, fair voting. And everybody should be focused on that and not, I mean, it's just been appalling to hear. Well, and just to say the way that she did, like, oh, democracy is on the doorstep of death. If we don't pass this stuff that we and only we want, not a single Republican, I mean, Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, the most anti-Trump Republicans in Congress are against this stuff, but they treat it like the only thing that's standing between us and the death of democracy. And to invoke, like, weeping founding fathers is bizarre. It's very strange. I think it's such overkill that it's counterproductive. Meanwhile, you've got members of the commentariat, of course, on the left, but you also have this uh, particular subgroup of commentators who were like one-time Republicans or associated with the party in some way back in the day who are forever identified as conservatives even though they just carry water for the left now exclusively. Anna Navarro is one of them. She said, message to hypocritical elected officials, don't you dare post an MLK quote if you're not fighting to protect the right to vote. Don't commemorate, legislate. Then you have Michael Steele, who actually was the chairman of the Republican Party at one time. He tweeted at Mitch McConnell, at Joe Manchin, at Senator Sinema about Martin Luther King and the day commemorating him. No need to speak today. You have already spoken. 
basically saying, shut up because you won't go with this Democratic uh, power grab. You are betraying King, so keep your mouth shut and don't say a word about him. Like, keep his name out your mouth, basically. And I just find it genuinely appalling that anyone would feel like they have the authority to tell other Americans that we're not allowed to appreciate Dr. King because we have a disagreement on policy substance and on procedure, like in the U.S. Senate. That seems like grotesque to me and a terrible misappropriation of history and the legacy and the progress that we've made largely thanks to Dr. King. But like they go straight to that. They have no compunction whatsoever, even though that is grotesquely, I would say, unfair and cheap to frame things the way that they have. And it would be grotesque even if we had a clear idea of what Dr. Martin Luther King thought about the particular radical proposals the Democrats have right now. There is no evidence to suggest that he wanted insecure voting. There is no evidence to suggest that he wanted to make it easier for his own party to cheat in elections. And, and also, by the way, he doesn't, he doesn't belong to them. He belongs to all of us. Exactly. His memory and belongs to America. It is the beauty of a federal holiday that we all get to enjoy and reflect and remember the great things uh, done and said by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Anna Navarro does not own him, and she doesn't get to act like she owns him. And it's just really, it's just, it's just grotesque is a great word to describe it. But it would, and that would be true even if we had some reason to believe that he supported these fairly extreme policy views being pushed right now by Democrats. Which we don't, and it's irrelevant, and we can make, you know, a case on the merits. I mean, you can say Senator Tim Scott is a racist. You can make that point. It's not going to go well for you. In fact, you just finished using the racist filibuster to kill his police reform bill. And now you're turning around and saying he's a racist using a racist tool. I mean, it's, it's, it's incoherent. It's ridiculous. I actually, because they don't have the votes, I hope they stick with it. Because the American people don't believe this stuff. They are concerned about inflation and Omicron and a bunch of other stuff, not this. And the crazier they get in this insular funhouse mirror world that they've created for themselves and catering to like left-wing Twitter, the more totally out of touch they look. That's my view. Last word to you, Molly. Even on the voting issue, the vast majority of Americans do believe in things like voter ID and Correct. secure ballots. And That's so right. even on that, they, they're not with them. Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, Fox News contributor. You can check out her books, Justice on Trial and Rigged. Molly, always enjoy it. We'll have you back soon. Take care. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson show, it's just a full court press culturally on these people too, like cinema and mansion. They're going to actually vote on something they know they don't have the votes to pass, just to like shame them and make a point. It's just it's crazy in the Senate. Meanwhile, out there in the entertainment world, and you should see the way that the left goes after senators who are actually governing as moderates, who campaign as moderates have promised that they were not going to change the filibuster and are just holding the position that every Senate Democrat, almost all of them had just a few years ago. 
In 2017, they all insisted, no changing the filibuster. It's a guardrail for our democracy. It is vital. We have to have a firewall around it. Those were Chuck Schumer's terms. Manchin and the Senate were like, yeah, we agree. And we still agree, and now they're just, you know, enemy number one and two. Stephen Colbert, comedian, CBS, called cinema Mrs. Hamburglar. Isn't that hilarious? Then he said this, cut 26. The 50 senators who are currently filibustering the voting rights bill represent 41 million fewer Americans than the senators who support it. Stop acting like the filibuster is anything other. Stop acting like the filibuster is anything other than an anti-democratic tool, which is also a pretty good description of Kirsten Cinema. Hilarious comedy, edgy, unpredictable. No laughing there, just a bunch of cheering from the elite liberal New York audience about the filibuster. I saw someone said this is just lib group therapy at this point. It's not comedy, that's true. wonder why Gutfeld keeps winning. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Andy McCarthy, straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Guy Benson. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett and company, Fox News Channel 6 p.m. Eastern Hour. Hope to see you there. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Here, the podcast is free every day when the show is over. That's on demand. That's no charge to you. Simple, easy peasy. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. And it was a down day on Wall Street. Dow plunging 542 points, ending the day at 35,369. We now welcome back to the show Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple books. He writes at National Review and elsewhere. Andy, it is great to have you back. Guy, great to be with you as always. You worked a lot with the FBI when you were a federal prosecutor. You often defend the FBI when you feel like it is justified or uh, worthy, and you are also not unwilling to criticize the FBI uh, from time to time, depending on the circumstances. I wonder what you make of their handling of this uh, terrorist event in Fort Worth, Texas, over the weekend, the hostage situation during services at a synagogue. Uh, We know that this was a radical Islamist terrorist who took hostages. Thankfully, they all escaped, uh, apparently quite dramatically, uh, running out the door while the rabbi threw a chair at the guy at one point. Uh, The suspect is dead. There are other arrests made across the pond in the UK, so it does not look like a lone wolf situation. But you had on one side a successful resolution. We don't know how much of that was due to law enforcement, how much was just bravery of the hostages. Then you had that strange sort of spin press conference afterwards where the FBI wasn't really acknowledging why 
Jewish people were targeted or even admitting that Jewish people were specifically targeted for that reason. Then they changed their tune under criticism the next day. It just kind of reminded me a little bit of how for a long time the FBI was insisting that they did not have a political motive that they could identify for the guy who tried to assassinate a bunch of Republicans at baseball practice, asking to make sure they were Republicans before he started shooting at them. The FBI for years was like, oh, we just don't really know if this had anything to do with politics. And I think a lot of average people, even people who who respect law enforcement and like the FBI, they look at instances like this and they think, why are they saying these things? Why would they play dumb in a way that is so bizarre and unconvincing. I just wonder what your overall analysis is now that we know what the resolution is. Thank God it was a good one. And we have time to sort of look at not just the execution, but also the messaging afterwards. Well, Guy, I I think this story gets worse as you look at it. I was inclined and I'm still inclined to give them a little bit of rhythm on the messaging right afterwards with respect to the thing that people were most whipped up about. And I want to say justifiably so, where they preposterously come out and say that the uh, terrorist was not targeting the Jewish community under the circumstances where he went to a synagogue to take hostages. Um, I think what the special agent in charge of the Dallas field office was trying to say in a kind of a tineered way was that the FBI was not aware of any generalized plot targeting synagogues across the country and that the specific objective that this particular terrorist had was to try to extort the U.S. government into freeing this other imprisoned terrorist, uh, uh, Afia Siddiqui. But obviously part of that plot was to take hostages in a, in a synagogue in order to bring that about, and that was a natural given the thing that the FBI doesn't want to talk about, which is that uh, jihadist ideology seeds with anti-Semitism, but they are so hypersensitive about offending, especially Islamist organizations, because they're, um, you know, it's the kind of squeaky wheel syndrome, Uh, but they don't want to be perceived as saying anything that will be spun as the FBI is saying that all Muslims are anti-Semitic, which of course you wouldn't be saying if you just explain what happened. Well, and you so, did have some some sort of Muslims who are in progressive media during the standoff. While there were Jewish people in harm's way, they were tweeting already that the true victims were Muslims because of the Islamophobia that would come and stem from this. And they, they would never say such a thing if, let's say, it had been a white nationalist who had taken the hostages, which unfortunately is also possible because Jew hatred has a lot of different weird cross-sections in terms of ideology, I don't think anyone would be would have uh, any sort of idea of going on to social media and saying, well, the, the real victim here is going to be uh, you know, just, just white Christians because we're all going to get smeared. I think that that's like a very myopic, strange thing to do. But we saw that from some people because they were already trying to sort of work the refs in the media and elsewhere to not necessarily just say the facts of what's happening. The thing, Andy, though, is this guy reportedly was shouting crazy anti-Semitic things at the synagogue where he chose him. He just showed up not by accident. He flew in from the U.K. and just accidentally shows up at a synagogue, a house of worship, 
for Jewish people where he says anti-Jewish things while trying to free a jailed terrorist who at her trial apparently famously demanded that all of the potential jurors have genetic tests to make sure that they weren't Jews. Kind of seems like there's a theme here that just, uh, I don't know, an armchair gumshoe like myself, a total amateur, can put together in about four seconds. And it took the FBI like 24 to 48 hours to figure out how to talk about it. It's just very, it's very weird to me. It is weird, and it's also always bad. You know, Guy, the, the expression Islamophobia didn't, you know, it didn't, like, materialize spontaneously. It, it was, uh, it's kind of a creation of the Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim Brotherhood organizations in the West uh, in particular. And, you know, if you're going to let the anti-Americans define you and you're going to sort of gauge your language and your performance according to what's going to outrage them, you're going to be behind the eight ball all the time. But I think the unfortunate thing about this is we're, we're understandably um, riveted to the language that they used in, in trying to explain what happened and how ham-handed they are in, in that regard. But the bigger problem here even putting aside the fact that we don't really know what happened in the mosque yet, it now looks like the you know the, the hostages were out before the HRT, the synagogue, team, the hostage rescue team. I, I'm sorry, the synagogue. It, the hostages were out before the agents came in. So there's unanswered questions about what actually went on. Right, there. the TikTok. Um, but the most important thing here, guy, is how did this guy get into the United States? Because there's three different ways that he should have been excluded. He had a criminal record in England. He has a record of uh, being an apologist for particularly the 9-11 terrorists, which should have been uh, uh, excluded. A red flag, and, perhaps? <laughs> oh, yeah, and not only a red flag, but something that statutorily is a reason to keep somebody out of the United States. It's written right into our immigration law, as is keeping people out if they have mental health issues, which there's been confirmation today from uh, at least British authorities who were talking to uh, some American media outlets that that was the case. So there's three different reasons to keep him out. And the reason I highlight this is, you know, there's obviously questions we need answers from from the the British government in, in terms of our cooperation and information sharing. But, you know, when President Trump came into office, he ratcheted up the the vetting process for people coming into the country from from areas where Sharia supremacism, radical Islam uh, are you know these are hotbeds, and one of the first things that Biden did when he came into office was countermand Trump's ratcheting up of the vetting process of aliens trying to come into the country. So you, when you see something like this, and you see all the red flags and the guy gets into the country anyway, you have to wonder, are we taking seriously the obligation to keep people out of the country who don't belong in this country? Well, I mean, we're not because we're not protecting the southern border either, and we know that that's not just day laborers crossing the border. It's dangerous people as well, which is part of the problem. But this is like someone who went through a formal process of getting on an airplane and flying here with all these red flags. And, Andy, I don't want to feel like I'm – you know, a conspiracy theorist or someone who's just bagging on the FBI for no reason. Again, I, I have friends in the FBI. I'm glad that they're out there and they work very hard in many cases to keep us safe every day. 
you're also going to get people who sit back and say, okay, this guy with all these red flags, all three that you mentioned, he manages to get from the U.K. into the United States. He manages to get himself to Fort Worth to find a synagogue to then hold Jews hostage. Everything goes down the way it does. The FBI is like, golly, we're not really sure if he was targeting the Jewish community or whatever. And some Americans might say, what exactly is the FBI doing and prioritizing here? Because it's not that long ago that we saw the Justice Department put out a memo based on a letter that was reportedly cooked up by another element of the Biden administration, the Education Department, to have the FBI involved in like investigating school board meetings that might get a little rowdy. And that was a controversy, and it seemed like a total misuse of federal power. But that is what the Biden Justice Department was working on at some point. And we, of course, had the massive investigation on all the, you know, the Russia stuff that turned out collusion ended up not being the case. And some people might just wonder to themselves or to others, what exactly is our federal law enforcement hierarchy prioritizing? If a guy like this slips through the cracks, but they are going to put FBI agents on the case if a dad raises his voice at a school board meeting somewhere? Yeah, these are great questions, Guy. Let me just, um, in defense of the FBI, at least a you know, sort of muted defense, uh, Chris Ray, the, uh, the director, did, to the extent I think he was able to and still keep his job, push back on what Biden and Attorney General Garland wanted done in terms of investigating parents. He did, to his credit, he did. The schools. Yeah, and the, there's no... There's a lot to fault Garland and the Justice Department on on that one, but I don't think the FBI did what they, you know, suggested. Right, that that's a good FBI distinction to make. And secondly, and this isn't much of a defense of the FBI because it's it's actually alarming. It means that we have a more government wide and intelligence wide problem. But what went wrong with the synagogue hostage taking scenario, I think, is broader than the FBI. Yeah, I agree. It involves the homeland security. It involves what information is the British government sharing, how good is our transfer of information from agency to agency, which was obviously it was a big problem in 9-11 that we haven't really solved yet. Uh, so the Bureau has a role in this, to be sure. But what I'm worried about is that there's a government-wide failure, and it comes from the top because the signal that's been sent from the White House is they're not interested in doing the vetting of people who come to this country with an intention to harm Americans. Yeah, because that's, that's Trump stuff. We can't have that. Andy, last question. We have about two minutes left. You've written at National Review asking, and again, this is not, you know, beat up on the FBI day, but you asked the question, where are the FBI, uh, the FBI rather, and the L.A. U.S. attorney on these train robberies? Can you just briefly describe, I've seen some of the images. They are shocking. It's like failed state-level stuff. These these yeah. frequent looting jobs of, of trains and you know packages getting totally rifled through, littering the tracks all over the place. What's going on out there, and why are you asking, where's the FBI? Well, it's like the, the Wild West of the 19th century all over again. But basically, in the Los Angeles area, at a, a part of the Union Pacific uh, Rail routes that they call the uh, Alameda Corridor, what's happening is containers are being robbed of valuable shipments. And just so people understand, Guy, 40% of the 
materials that get shipped into the United States go through two ports in the Los Angeles area, and a goodly amount of that gets shipped by rail. And what's happening is they're slowing down the trains, they're stopping the trains, they're hopping on board and stealing things by the, by the thousands worth millions and millions of dollars, including things, by the way, like COVID-19 at-home testing kits. Um, and as you, met, as you described... And it's not like one or two things. It's, it's a shocking amount of stuff that's stolen and just garbage everywhere, and it happens apparently like all the time now. 90, 90 containers a day, up 160% year over year. If you just go by October to October, it's more like 356%. And what, what, the reason I ask what are the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI doing about it is we're not getting reports of any federal investigations. Hopefully that's because they're doing them, but they are not publicizing it. But the local prosecutors in California won't do anything about this. Yeah, it's amazing. So as a result, the, you know, the people who are doing this are repeat offenders. You know, if they get arrested, which the cops in, in Los Angeles, have, you know, they're barely making arrests now because what's the point if the cases aren't going to be prosecuted? But these people are right back out at it the next day. Yeah, open season. It's absolute craziness, and it, it has just heavy whiffs of failed state stuff when you look at the video and the images and uh, – and he's written about it at National Review. Where are the FBI and the L.A. U.S. attorney on the Union Pacific train robberies, which are not insubstantial, as he just described? Andy McCarthy, always enjoy this conversation that we have ongoing back and forth, and we'll continue it very soon, I hope. Me too, Guy. Thanks so much. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. NBC News has a midterms tracker where they're trying to get a handle of how things might go. And they've got this kind of like a range of options from the Democrats are going to do really well and win all the way to getting shellac. They've got a needle and they're following certain metrics. One of them is the president's approval rating, and that's in shellacking territory. Then there is the right track, wrong track numbers in the country. That needle is in shellacking territory. On the congressional ballot, the generic congressional ballot, it's like statistically tied, which they say is a neutral range outcome for Democrats. But generally Democrats being tied or even slightly ahead on the generic ballot is not good news for them. They need to be clearly ahead to have a good a year and if they're tied or losing then they're in real trouble i would say there's another metric to keep an eye on that we've talked about a fair amount here and that is retirements members of the democratic party and the house in particular who decide you know what it's not worth it i don't want to do this anymore i'm out and today within a matter of just a few minutes two more house democrats announced they will not be seeking re-election jim Lagavin from 
Rhode Island, if I'm saying his name correctly, and Jerry McInerney from California. So uh, two blue states, one on each coast, and these two seats are now going to be vacant. And look, these are pretty dem safe seats. That's not the issue. The issue is you see Democrats looking at the political environment, even in safe seats, and saying, do I want to be reelected and serve in the minority, which is not fun, and be disempowered if the Republic or if the GOP is going to win. And a lot of these Democrats are looking around and saying, yeah, it looks like the GOP is going to win. Maybe I can find some more time to spend with my family. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you joining us today and every day. GuyBensonShow.com. So yesterday we brought you this story of the co-owner of the Warriors, Golden State Warriors in the NBA, based out in San Francisco. This guy, Chamath Palihapitiya, a name that I'm sure I am still getting wrong, he was on a podcast, and he said... Very proudly, really very aggressively, framing it almost as bold truth-telling that he does not care about the genocide happening against the Uyghurs. And genocide is not a word to be used lightly. It is not to be applied to things that are not genocide. I will just note that the State Department of the United States government, both under Trump and Biden, they have described what is happening to the Uyghurs, who are people of color, who are religious minorities, they're Muslims, What's happening to them at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang province in western China? They have described it as, categorized it as, a genocide. And this tech bro billionaire, Chamath, wanted the world to know that he does not give a crap about it. Cut 14. Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You, you bring it up because you really what? care. And I think what that's do you mean nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you a very care? hard... Wait, wait, I'm you're telling saying you, you personally very, don't care? I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth, okay? Of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay? Oh, of all the things that I care about, it is below my line. And one of his co-hosts or his buddies goes, that's disappointing, which is putting it mildly. He also said he might care about the economy and his money if China did certain things geopolitically. He says he cares about a bunch of other stuff, but not genocide. Cut 15. I I care about the fact that our economy could turn on a dime if China invades Taiwan. I care about that. I care about climate change. You know, I care about a bunch of, I care about America's crippling and, you know, decrepit healthcare infrastructure. But if you're asking me, do I care about a segment of a class of people in another country? Not until we can take care of ourselves, will I prioritize them over us. I mean, I don't think we're talking about prioritizing them over us. I think saying that, oh, we have some problems in this country. By the way, I would take our healthcare system over China's 10 days out of 10. I think you would too. This guy certainly would. But say, oh, we've got problems here, so we can't be bothered with other stuff elsewhere. That's such a cop-out. It's also this strange moral equivalency, because he was also talking about how the U.S. really isn't much better than China. 
He went on to talk about, you know, all of our issues and civil rights stuff here at home. He said, so yeah, look, if the economy turned on a dime because China did something like invading Taiwan, that would bother me. Not the invasion, not the taking over of a sovereign country, not the potential destruction of a U.S. ally and all of the bloodshed. It would be the economy that would concern him, the economic impact, his bottom line. I mean, he's being very, very open and transparent about what he cares about, what he doesn't. Climate change makes an appearance, of course. Oh, he cares about climate change. He cares about our decrepit healthcare infrastructure, which has the best research and development in the world, by the way, when it comes to medical progress. But if you ask me to care about genocide, I'm not going to do that. I'm prioritizing us. What an incredibly gross thing to say. You care about climate change. You want everyone to know what a great person you are because you care about climate change. But the act of genocide against a class of people based on their race, their ethnicity, their religion, Muslims, by a a totalitarian regime, where I guarantee you he has business interests within that regime. I mean, just as an NBA co-owner, of course he does. That is morally bankrupt and bereft. So he's gotten ripped on social media for this. I mean, deservedly so. Allah Pundit at HotAir.com, who I read every day, he wrote this. The most obnoxious part is when this guy demonstrates that curious blend of callousness and wokery to which old-school lefties would resort when asked about the crimes of the Soviet Union. How can I care about human rights abuses over there, says the conscientious progressive, when there are so many human rights abuses over here? Only when our own house is in order can a right-thinking American justly complain about another country's unjust regime, is what he argues. Beijing couldn't have put it any better. This is the CCP line, that the U.S. is as bad as China, They lie about their own crimes, and it's not our business anyway, but out. Who are we to judge? That is exactly what the Chinese propaganda machine argues on a daily basis. And this guy, wrapping it up in the language of woke progressivism, just mimics and repeats and regurgitates that moral bankruptcy. So this was enough of a firestorm that this guy, Chamath, who also runs a business and has a, a social fund of some sort, and you know, he, I'm sure he fancies himself a great philanthropist, he felt like he had to put out a statement to clarify. So he tweeted, important issues deserve nuanced discussions, some clarifying comments. And here's how he clarified. In re-listening to this week's podcast, I recognize that I come across as lacking empathy. I acknowledge that entirely. As a refugee, here we go, my family fled a country with its own set of human rights issues. So this is something that is very much part of my lived experience. Ah, buzzword there, ding. To be clear, my belief is human rights matter, whether in China, the United States, or elsewhere, full stop. End quote. That's the end of the statement. This says nothing. This says, oh, I lacked empathy. I got some heat for it. My family has this background, so it's my lived experience. Don't accuse me of being callous, even though I sounded that way. Let's be clear. Human rights matter in China, but also here in America. right? So he slides that moral equivalency back in 
And just to be clear, we are imperfect and flawed in the United States. We are much better than China. I'd say we're the greatest country on earth for all sorts of reasons. But in terms of the human rights and freedom issue, it is night and day. The United States of America and communist China. There is no comparison. But this guy continues to insist making that comparison. And in the process, he says nothing about the Uyghurs, nothing about genocide. He's just sorry that people caught on to something that he truly believes and said it out loud, and it caused a bit of a headache for him. So some words, a word salad was tossed together and thrown out onto the Internet as something approaching a quasi-apology, I guess, but there's no actual apology here. No reference to the actual genocide that he says he doesn't care about, and no clarification that he actually does care about a genocide, because he already told us that he doesn't. One of the few things, one of the only actual substantive points that he gets into this very brief statement is to once again repeat the equivalency canard between the U.S. and China. This was his best effort at this, apparently, and he's hoping that it will just go away. The Golden State Warriors, the franchise, they also put out a very short statement in response. As a limited investor who has no day-to-day operating functions with the Warriors, Mr. Palahapataya does not speak on behalf of our franchise, and his views certainly don't reflect those of our organization. That's it. It's like, okay, well, he's a large share owner of the franchise, so... The fact that he doesn't have day-to-day operating functions, I don't really understand why that's relevant. But they say he doesn't speak on behalf of the franchise, okay, and his views don't reflect those of our organization. Okay, that's good. Which views and why? What are they talking about here? Right? What they're hoping with this statement, again, is to all move on where they can check a box saying, oh, look, we distanced ourselves. We don't like that. But what they have not done, conspicuously absent from the non-apology from the guy himself and from this distancing statement from the Warriors, missing entirely is any addressing of the actual issue, which is the Chinese Communist Party engaged in an active genocide against people of color and Muslims. Like, do the Warriors take a position on that? They say that their partial owner has views that don't reflect their views. What are their views? Be specific. Can we get Steve Kerr, their coach, their super woke left-wing coach? Can he come to the microphone and maybe he, he considers himself a man of words and a deeply sophisticated citizen of the world? Can he come out and maybe expand on his personal views or maybe the franchise's views on the genocide China's committing? Will they acknowledge that the genocide is happening? I'd be surprised because of the financial interests at play. I saw the Biden administration was also asked about this. They said they did not support the statements that this guy made. They rejected his comments. He bundled a quarter of a million dollars for Biden, by the way. So he's a big Democrat. I'm sure he thinks he's a much better person than most people in this audience. He's a Democrat. He's a progressive. By definition, he's a better person. He's such a better person that, of course, he can come out and say, I don't care about a genocide being committed against people of color and religious minorities because progressives are just right about things. After all, he cares about climate change. He said so. 
So there have been some slaps on the wrist, some vague, gauzy statements put out there that don't really mean much of anything, very nonspecific, not pointed at all, not getting into details about the oh, rather unpleasant things that are underlying this controversy, which is the point, of course. And I once again come back to a point that I made yesterday on the air that I then tweeted about last night that I want to underscore and expound upon right after this break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show, a few more points to make about this, including this one. Donald Sterling, super rich guy out in the West Coast, he used to own the Clippers, the L.A. Clippers. And then he was recorded secretly in a private conversation saying racist things. And they were clearly racist. They were indefensibly racist. Those tapes leaked. It became a huge thing. And he was drummed out of the league. He was barred for life and fined the maximum $2.5 million on his way out the door by the league. Now, I'm just wondering what the rules are. What are the standards over at the NBA? If a private conversation that is secretly recorded reveals that you said something racist gets you that outcome and that ostracized treatment, and I'm not defending him or arguing against what happened to him. I do think it was pretty creepy, the secret recording stuff. Like, I'm not sure that's a great path to go down. I think people might be able to agree on that. But he said what he said. Let's just set aside whether that was justified or not. We saw what happened to him. What are the rules or standards that apply here when another partial owner in the NBA rushes to a microphone and voluntarily, proudly asserts repeatedly that there's a genocide going on against racial and religious minorities, and he doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about the death. He doesn't care about the rapes. He doesn't care about the slave labor. He doesn't care about the re-education camps. He doesn't care about the torture. He doesn't care about any of that. It just doesn't reach his line of caring. We've gotten a few statements, and that's about it. Is that the extent of the fallout? I'm not a cancel culture guy. I do like to know if there are consistent rules and standards that apply, because it seems like very often with the woke crowd, uh, that is not the case. And they pick and choose. Right? Donald Sterling could have been bad for business with the NBA. This guy will make a negligible impact or could potentially help business if the Chinese are happy to see that he doesn't get punished, happy to see that he was downplaying the genocide and saying he doesn't care. That could open some more business opportunities for the NBA in communist China, which seems to be their overwhelming priority, the NBA. Right? They care so much about civil rights and human rights and equity and all of it here at home because that's safe and profitable. Oh, we're, all, we're so concerned about democracy in America. They all believe this. They repeat the mantra, democracy's under attack. We're in a crisis. That is all hyperbolic insanity. But where you actually have democracy being crushed under the jackboot of government is in Hong Kong. And you say one word about that in the NBA, and you are in immediately big, big trouble. And LeBron will come after you. Nike will pull your organization's gear off the shelves in stores in China in solidarity with the communists. 
And we've seen how this has played out. Why is there a double standard at play? Well, part of it's money, right? We've already talked about that. Money, money, money. Their professed values, this is who we are. This is not who we are, means nothing. It's all words to a lot of these people. It's about cash and the bottom line and money, and China is playing this brilliantly. They've gotten the West addicted to Chinese money, and they are shifting our values very successfully as a result. It also comes down to a lot of progressives not wanting to criticize communists. I know that might sound a little bit far-fetched. I actually really believe it. Like, culturally, talking about the evil of the Nazis, I mean... We all do that all the time because it's the right thing. You see a lot less criticism of the communists responsible for 100 million deaths because people are less excited, less willing, less eager, less self-righteous about criticizing murderous leftists. That's an unfortunate reality in large segments of our society, including taste-making institutions. And then, perhaps worst of all, because conservatives are worked up over this, because conservatives are very critical of China, and Trump was too, well, they don't want to be on our side. They would much rather defend communist China or look the other way and turn a blind eye to the genocide regime than be caught dead agreeing with someone like me, or certainly someone like Donald Trump. Heaven forbid. So that's what's going on. I will await with bated breath any clarification about ramifications for this or what might come next. I'm not expecting much. Because there are just different standards for different people. It is political. It is dishonest. It's very cynical. And it just seeds deeper mistrust and disunity within our culture and our society, where we don't even have confidence in our values. Because we don't really share the values anymore. That's the coming apart that worries me. And incidents like this, I think, illustrate it in real time and throw it into stark relief. But I will leave you in this segment with the words of Enos Cantor Freedom of the Boston Celtics, who actually does care and does see this clearly and is willing to speak out from Fox last night, Cut 17. My manager texted me this video right before the game. And first of all, I couldn't believe it. I was very angry, very disgusted and very disappointed. And, you know, his comments were so... I, I was like, I couldn't focus on the game because, because of his comments. I mean, you look at the Uyghur people, what's happened to the Uyghurs is one of the worst human rights abuses in the world today, and there is a genocide happening while we are talking right now. And him going out there and saying, I could care less, is a shame, and it is disgusting. Preach. That takes guts and moral clarity, and he has a lot of it. Much more than most of his brethren in that league, let's put it that way. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show, straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks for listening. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday or around the clock for free on demand on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com. All the details there. GuyBensonShow.com. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is great. We just got our shipment in yesterday at the house. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Find out where it's sold near you. Order online. TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus. Always drink responsibly. And one programming note, I'll be on a special report tonight. Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour. Part of the panel with Mara Liason, Hugh Hewitt, and, of course, Brett Baer. With us now is Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins and their School of Public Health. He's written a book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. I follow him on Twitter, at Marty McCary. Doctor, great to have you back here. Good to be with you, Guy. So you're in the news just a little bit because there's a new governor in Virginia, my new governor, and you are advising him on health-related policy. How did that come to be? Well, I'm a huge fan of uh, Governor Youngkin. He's one of the smartest people I've ever known. Um, I don't speak on behalf of the governor, but I was privileged when he invited me to head up his medical advisory team. He is smart enough to know it's good to hear a lot of different ideas out there, so he uh, has chosen people who speak without any party allegiance and just speak what they truly believe to be the scientific basis for policy. So we're advising uh, the governor uh, specifically on COVID, on how to dig out of COVID, on how to uh, alleviate the burden on rural hospitals, on um, how to ensure maximum safety for young people, for children, for folks with disabilities. So I've been honored to uh, serve on this committee, and thanks for asking about it, Guy. Well, on that front, I'm very curious because you may have heard there's some controversy about some of the things that the governor has already done with some of his executive orders, one of which is reversing the statewide vaccine mandate for state workers. Another, the biggest one, the biggest flashpoint, is ending the mandatory masking in schools policy, where parents now, at least theoretically, because this is being challenged already and defied by some of the counties, but parents under this order would have the ability to make decisions for their kids in schools. There would not be a ban on masks. Parents just decide whether their kids should wear masks in classrooms. That decision has been derided and assailed as anti-science, anti-safety, dangerous, and will get kids killed. What is your response to the criticisms from some of these counties like Arlington, Alexandria, Fairfax, and some of the figures locally at the state level and even nationally, the White House spokeswoman, saying that this is an affront to children's safety? Well, it's my personal opinion that children during the pandemic don't just die of COVID. They die of depression, poverty, hopelessness, substance abuse, um, deferred medical care, stress. And so I think we've got to take care of the entire person when we talk about health, not just um, viral replication. And by the way, we're using a lot of policies designed for Delta in an era when the CDC tells us that 98.3% of all cases are Omicron. That was a statistic from last year. It's rapidly increasing. So nearly 100% of cases are Omicron. How deadly is Omicron? Well, we have a study from University of um, from from Southern California from Kaiser Permanente, and they looked at 52,000 cases of Omicron, and there may have arguably been one death, pro- probably not in my opinion, but potentially one out of 52,000 cases. Now, just to give you a reference point, 
the number of people who have died of Delta, Beta, and Alpha strains has been about one in 400. So we've gone from one in 400 to one, possibly one out of 52,000. We are using policies designed for containment and for Delta and applying them to a virus that behaves differently. Now, it's not to downplay it. People get sick and we'd never want anyone to get sick. But we've got to abandon the idea that we can achieve COVID zero if we just hyper test every single human being and quarantine them. And so um, when we talk about taking care of the whole person, that means looking at all of the data. The Brown University study was pretty clear that kids are dealing with cognitive and motor performance problems and significant delays. And that those delays, they write in the research study, were most among those low socioeconomic status. So that's a concern. That's a concern. When it comes to forcing masks on kids, because I think this is such an important point, and you're kind of getting at it here. I just want to make it a little bit more specific. The data, and correct me if I'm wrong, the data from around the world does not support the idea that forcing children, especially young children, to mask for eight hours a day, especially with paper masks or cloth masks, that that does not affect in any statistically significant way the rate of transmission among students in schools. We've seen schools that have done it, schools that have not done it, and the results are virtually identical. There's no difference, which very much calls into question the efficacy of the policy of forcing kids to wear masks in the classroom. However, and I know you've written about this at the Wall Street Journal, there was a big piece a few months ago at The Atlantic about this, there actually are some established health concerns and well-being concerns that stem from forced masking for some kids who are actually harmed by that policy. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think we've had this assumption that masks are totally benign, that you could mask somebody for their entire childhood, and there would be zero downsides. We've had that assumption from many of our, from much of our public health guidance. Well, it turns out that the data are now pretty clear that the cloth masks are really not doing much in terms of reducing transmission. And by the way, we have an acknowledgement now that everybody will get Omicron. It's just so it's that ubiquitous that it's um, it's basically <clears throat> almost uh, unavoidable. Now, that's not saying people should resign themselves to it. It's good to use good public health hygiene. But we have covered the faces of children for two years with really no data to support the cloth masks. And many of us were saying, hey, look at the particle size of an aerosolized virus with COVID. It's about three to five microns. And look at the pore size of the cloth masks. It's 10 to 20 microns. And so we've always said the quality of the mask matters. The question is, what's the role of the parents here? I think if a child wants to wear a mask or a parent thinks their child should wear a mask, by all means, they should go ahead and, and, and wear a mask. But to cut out the parents entirely from the decision is something that, you know, ha- has issues. Um, when you're talking about an intervention that does have some downsides. Now, if someone says, hey, my kid does well at wearing a mask, that, that doesn't mean every kid does well with a mask. I talked to a parent of a child with a profound disability, and that child gets special instruction uh, with special education and speech pathology. And for both the individuals to work on speech pathology, wearing a mask has had significant downsides. And I would, you know, encourage people to read the Surgeon General's report on our mental illness crisis among children. It's pretty stunning. We don't have data that has truly caught up with the policy, but it's pretty dramatic. And by the way, the other thing you asked about was the vaccine mandate. 
The governor is extremely, this is an observation, again, I don't speak on his behalf, is extremely pro-vaccine, encouraging everyone to get it. And I think many of us, in my opinion, has been that when people see the heavy hand of government and the politicalization of vaccine mandates and the complete ignoring of natural immunity, that has been hardening people and hurting our efforts to try to get more people immune. Meanwhile, I want to ask about a group that has weighed in on the school masking flap in Virginia, and that is the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they came in and they said, we urge masking students in schools. And I know some of their critics have pointed out a number of different things about this particular group. Uh, For example, when New York Magazine had a lengthy deep dive into the actual data on masking kids, and it didn't actually support the policy of forced masking universally for children in schools, they asked the American Academy of Pediatrics, which had weighed in again in favor of masking in schools, for the data to show their work. Where is the conclusive data that supports this recommendation? There was no response from AAP. AAP also had come out in the summer of 2020 in favor of opening schools the following academic year, and a week and a half later, they reversed themselves in alliance with the teachers' union. And so they have their critics out there calling them politicized. And I just wonder, as you look at that organization of doctors, and I think a lot of parents would say, oh, gosh, they would sit up and pay attention. The American Academy of Pediatrics says we should do this from on high. This is their guidance, their recommendation. They say based on medicine and science, what do you say? Well, I think we, and I've heard those criticisms that it's a highly political subgroup of pediatricians who are in the leadership of that organization and that they may not represent the membership of that organization. By the way, we see that with trade organizations, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I think they're well-intended, but you cannot cherry-pick the data. And right now, the data supporting cloth masks is based on a study that was done in Maricopa County by the CDC. And what it, it was so significantly flawed, it would not get published in any medical journal. They actually looked at virtual schools and try to use incorporate that data to suggest that, you know, the masks were working when people were really just learning virtually. They had more schools in the study than exist in the counties that they studied. So the data was so heavily flawed, honestly, it would not qualify for a seventh grade science fair. You cannot cherry pick data and just create data to support a foregone conclusion. It's not how we do science. If you look at well, the study, especially when I would just say, especially when there's so much, not just you know hypothetical case studies or narrow research, there's an entire world, literally, of real world outcomes for the last year and a half, with a yeah. lot of schools not masking and a lot of schools masking, and we can see the results, and it's basically indistinguishable. The actual outcomes lot- to, to me that seems like a pretty compelling stuff. There's a lot we don't hear about with COVID. Uh, for example, do you think people know out there that the, that the European CDC recommends against masking in primary schools? WHO is against masking in anyone under age six. Uh, uh, Ireland, many countries have warned very specifically about the detriment to universal masking of children with almost negligible uh, benefit. If you read the Brown University study, and I'll just quote here the conclusion – We find that children born during the pandemic had significantly reduced verbal, motor, and overall cognitive performance, and that this was more marked in lower socioeconomic families. 
So we cannot ignore that data, right? That is data that tells us that at minimum, we shouldn't be telling people to wear a mask or not a mask, but we should allow the parents to have a say. And I think that's a reasonable approach. When you have some of these rogue counties, and I listed a couple of them earlier, who have decided that they're going to defy the governor's order, and there's certainly a number of legal fights that are shaping up at this point, they sort of hide behind the words of safety and science. The Daily Caller reached out to Arlington County asking for their data. This is actually similar to what we saw from the American Academy of Pediatrics and that New York Magazine piece. This was another news organization asking another group of people making decisions on public health for their data to support the decision that they were making and to try to defy what the governor is saying. And they accidentally, in the Arlington Public Schools, cc'd the Daily Caller on their internal debate where they decided it was not in their interest to engage and to respond with anything, let alone data. Do you think that it's in the best interest of public policy and children for the people making decisions to be transparent about the basis for those decisions? Yes, and I would even add to that guy that I think the I think people out there are hungry for honesty. I think they they want to see some humility among public health officials with the guidance that they give. I mean, they have been told for a long time, don't ask questions, we can't give you data, trust us, this is our clinical wisdom, and just do as we say. And what we've failed to do in public health is oftentimes quantify risk and quantify benefit. And I think one of the original sins of this entire pandemic response is the failure to recognize that the risk is not equally distributed in the population and that it's so profoundly skewed, even more skewed than we appreciated for most of this pandemic, that we should have a different response in different segments of the population. For example, not every single person needs three doses of the vaccine, right? Those who are older, yes. A younger person who has two doses and has had natural immunity, there's no compelling evidence in the literature to say they need that booster if they're healthy. Yeah, and the kids are safest of all, thank God much more likely to die from drowning or in a car accident than from COVID. And yet it doesn't feel that way based on the hysteria and the rhetoric that we hear. All right, doctor, there's one more question that I want to ask, one more observation, and I want to get your reaction to it. And it deals with credibility. We've gone long. We're up on a break. Let me take it, and then I'll ask that question. I'll pose it to you as soon as we come back. Dr. Marty McCary on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back, Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Dr. Marty McCary is with us. Last question, doctor, and it really circles back to something that you just mentioned. It references a word you just used, humility. Humility from public officials. I wonder if you think that humility, when it comes to pronouncements and declarations, for example, about masking in schools and saving kids' lives and and all this overwrought communication about all of it, should the people perhaps making these declarations, should they be more humble than most if they were the same people, for example, who were catastrophically wrong for a year and a half about school closures? Because it seems to me that if you were that wrong on something that important, ignoring that data, maybe you should take a back seat on subsequent related decisions and debates. Or apologize and say, look, we got it wrong. Uh, we we had the best of intentions, but we really missed this one. We called for the closure of schools for a year. 
with what ended up being a less contagious variant than the one we have in the fall where we, you know, acknowledge schools need to be open. And that was a big miss. And we apologize and we recognize schools were closed inappropriately and it's going to harm children. And we're going to try to do everything we can to catch up. That's the level of humility that I think would go a long way among the advocates who called for the closure of schools. And and I'm including Dr. Fauci in that. He has a lot of influence and he was part of that. Um, But you're so right. I mean, we with distorted perception of risk right now, motor vehicle accidents independently far greater, kill far more people, people under 17 or 20, even up to 24 suicide, homicide, drug overdoses, all propose a greater risk than COVID by orders of magnitude. Well, if you're waiting for an apology and some self-reflection and an admission that they got it wrong and that they need to do better, I think you might be waiting for a very long time. As you can probably attest, given the slings and arrows that you've taken, simply for beating a different path, even though it's a data-driven one. And I know that Governor Yunkin is under fire from some just for having you as one of his advisors. But I have to say, personally speaking, when I saw your name attached to the governor in this administration and some of the public policy decisions and debates that are going to happen moving forward in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I was encouraged. I think a lot of people were, too, as evidenced by the victory of Glenn Youngkin in the race where he was attacked on all of this stuff and he won. That's a political point that I will end on just speaking on my own behalf as a Virginia resident and voter. Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, Johns Hopkins surgeon and professor, and now an advisor to Governor Yunkin in Virginia on public health policy. Doctor, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Great to be with you, Guy. Thank you. We will be right back. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Earlier today, Molly Hemingway dropped by. We had a lot to discuss, as usual, with Molly, our colleague here at Fox News. Here's part of that conversation. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that, why this matters to people who aren't just Virginia residents like you and I happen to be. And then also just how you feel this is shaping up so far. Yeah, it's really one thing if the far left acts hysterical about a Republican politician who at least gives some reason to act hysterical, but to do it with Glenn Youngkin, who's a fairly moderate dude who campaigned, uh, yes, as a conservative, but as a very sort of centrist conservative, when you act hysterical about him doing things that are largely popular nationwide, you just sound crazy. And so that's what's happened in these first few days of the Youngkin administration is the reaction to him just sounds a bit unhinged. But I think this is a national issue, whether to mask children, whether to force the masking of children. And it it sounds crazy to people nationwide that this would even be an issue. But here in Virginia, where the northern Virginia area is really controlled by the base of the Democrat Party, it actually is kind of controversial to say that parents should be free to decide whether or not their children, you know, who may have hearing problems or developmental disabilities or health reasons or claustrophobia, you know, any number of reasons. It's kind of controversial to say that parents should be allowed to make their own decisions. And I think it shows how the Democrat Party is not served well by its base, which is increasingly of the fringe, because they're they begin advocating for things that most of the country thinks are absurd, like the forced masking of children with no way for parents to check out of that system. 
So here's another example from New York City, and I saw there was a school social worker who tweeted this yesterday, Justin Spiro. He got a screen grab of a basketball broadcast in New York. This was a Knicks game. So I see Walt, uh, Walt Frazier's there. It looks like Mike Breen on play-by-play, the two broadcasters. And sitting between them, courtside, doing an interview during the broadcast, is the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. And they're all unmasked. They're all you know, smiling and looking like they're having a nice time. And what this school worker, this school social worker notes is this. Mayor Adams is having fun with 20,000 maskless friends at a Knicks game today. Tomorrow, he will force three-year-olds to mask for speech therapy and kindergartners to mask for recess outdoors. Adult recreation, once again, takes precedence over children's developmental needs. And then there's this, this photo that kind of speaks for itself. And I'm not saying that Adams is a hypocrite because he's not wearing a mask indoors because the way that it works, I guess, at Madison Square Garden is you have to show that you're vaccinated and then you can go in. So he's not technically breaking the rules. What I'm saying is the rules are incoherent. We have kindergartners outdoors wearing masks based on zero science, but adults can sort of yuck it up and have a great time indoors at a sporting event, all packed into an arena, and these kids are outside in masks and struggling with masks during things like speech therapy. It makes no sense, Molly, and for people who live in very red areas, this has not been in red states. This has not been anything close to their lives for months and months and months, and, you know, I I envy them on that front, but for tens of millions of Americans, this is the type of thing that we're confronting every day, and it's driving a lot of people crazy, uh, very much on both sides, but the, the neurosis seems to be winning in a lot of places still, despite the science. I have to say the thing that drives me crazy is when you see these photos of celebrities or wealthy people, elites of one kind or another, socializing without masks, of course, because why would they do that? But all the people serving them are wearing these masks and get-ups, and Mm -hmm. it just feels so icky and un-American to see that. But I think you really hit the nail on the head with pointing out there's no scientific basis for this. There have been multiple studies done. None show a statistically significant effect for forced masking children. I mean, there's there's a time and a place to wear masks, like in in a surgical theater or, you know, in certain hospital situations. Um, But that time is not children in speech therapy in school. And it's, we have seen so many negative things associated with this forced masking of children. And I could, again, see why some parents might choose to put one, two, three, four masks on their child. But that doesn't mean everybody should be forced to mask their children when there's no scientific case that this is in any way a good way to limit the transmission of what is clearly a global pandemic that is not stopping. My full interview with Molly Hemingway of The Federalist and Fox News, available online. GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast, the entirety of the show on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, the Olympics underway shortly in communist China. Will I be watching? Should you watch? We'll kind of bat that question around as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch. On this Tuesday, it's the Guy Benson Show. 
Very glad to have you aboard and listening every day. Catch me on Special Report tonight around 6.40 Eastern for the panel with Brett and team Fox News Channel. While the Olympics are right around the corner, the Winter Olympics, hosted by the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing, February 4th is the opening ceremony. That's what's scheduled. They've announced that they're not going to allow the general public in as spectators due to COVID. This will be one of the most controversial Olympic Games really in recent memory. For all the reasons that should be obvious, considering who's hosting these games. I saw a report just yesterday that Olympic athletes from Western countries in particular are being advised to leave their personal phones back at home rather than bring them to China because there are privacy and spying concerns. Because what authoritarian regimes often do is try to crack into people's devices and then spy on them. I remember, for example, when I traveled to Russia with Secretary Pompeo during the Trump administration. We were in Sochi for less than a day. He was there meeting with his counterpart, Lavrov. I asked a question at the joint press conference. He also met with Putin. I was within 10 feet of Vladimir Putin, which was a bit of a chilling experience just seeing the guy. But we were on the ground in Putin's Russia for less than 24 hours. And they had us leave our electronic equipment, our personal phones and laptops, in protected bags aboard the U.S. government aircraft that they sometimes call Air Force Three. It's a 737. They said, don't bring that with you off the plane. And when you've got a state like China, a surveillance state, known for espionage, known for intellectual property theft and other things like this. It would seem to be a no-brainer. It also kind of sucks for the athletes who probably want to just have their device and memorialize their experience and live normally, but that's not what the Chinese Communist Party allows. And yet the International Olympic Committee, they just keep picking regimes, despotic regimes like this, untrustworthy countries to host games. Not always, of course, but fairly often. What, China had them in 2008 as well? No, they have them again. The Russians hosted in Sochi in between. Anyway, just one more wrinkle there. Leave your phone at home, please, unless you want to get hacked by the Chicoms. That inspires confidence, doesn't it? I've talked a lot about these Olympic Games on this show for months, questioning the wisdom of of participating at all. Should we send our athletes? Should we deprive our athletes of this opportunity when they're at peak performance, when you might only have one Olympics for which you qualify in a career? Maybe two or three. Is that fair? I know the Biden administration has done what I consider to be the right thing, but the bare minimum thing with the diplomatic boycott. I would have liked to have seen a much more dramatic corporate boycott of some sort, but we're not seeing that. And this goes back to a conversation we had earlier on the show about the Uyghurs and the co-owner of the Golden State Warriors saying what he said and sort of the development of that controversy over the last 24 hours or so. But it's about to become real. The world stage is about to be seeded 
to a country, to a government, to a regime that has lied about the pandemic and its origins with cover-ups and punishments and disappearances and all of that. Millions of people are dead. They are, according to the West, according to our own State Department, engaged in an act of genocide against people of color, ethnic and religious minorities. They've done a lot of other persecution against Christians in Tibet. They've been bellicose and violent and threatening with the Indian military, for example, with Taiwan in the South China Sea. I mean, the rap sheet goes on and on. Democracy actually under assault in Hong Kong. And what the world community is going to do with that backdrop is say, all right, the most prestigious thing we do as a global or international sporting world, with everyone tuning in, the most prestigious event, you're going to get to host it. And the question becomes, for someone like me, am I going to watch? Like, what is my moral calculation in watching the games? And I don't think it's necessarily an easy question. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you ought to do because the truth seems so clear-cut to me. I'm not sure I'm going to do a hard boycott. I will definitely be watching less than I generally or typically would. The Winter Olympics are my preference. Summer Olympics are fine. I like the events better at the Winter Olympics, especially hockey, although the NHL is not allowing their athletes to participate in the Olympics this round for COVID-related reasons. I wish they were doing it as a stand to China. They're at least couching it as COVID. So that makes the appeal of the hockey less significant to me at least just from a sports standpoint before i get to the politics from a sports standpoint dan are you an olympics guy you're a huge sports guy are you an olympics guy and do you care more about one like summer versus winter or the other so i love watching the olympics i could sit there every single day for hours and watch it on every it's on all the channels it's on do it on everything um i'm more of a summer olympics guy i love track and field I love watching that, but I also do love hockey, and I'm going to miss out for the Winter Olympics this year because the NHL players won't be playing. So yeah, they're still having hockey, right? Just not yes. not at the same level because anyone who's getting paid by the NHL can't participate. So it's going to be right. more of an amateur thing. And I'd watch that, and that could be interesting. I will, of course, be rooting for Team USA to go to Communist China and win as much gold as they possibly can. It would be fantastic just to win medal after medal after medal on Chinese soil. Just be like, this is America, baby, and we're number one. That would be great, and I'm rooting hard for us to do that. And I don't fault any of the athletes for going. I just don't think that I'm that excited to watch the games in Beijing, knowing what Beijing, meaning the regime, is responsible for, not in the recent past, not in the distant past, actively right now. Like, there's a genocide right now. The world acknowledges it. The State Department under Trump and Biden both say, yes, it's a genocide. I just, it's hard for me to say, oh, well, I'm just going to sit back, relax, and enjoy some sporting events happening in a country that's doing a genocide and squeezing the life out of democracy in Hong Kong, which is where I grew up. I spent almost seven years as a kid in Hong Kong. That story bothers me probably more than the average American because it's more personal to me. 
I've started to see, as you probably have as well, some of the ads and the promotions on NBC. I do love the Olympics theme song, the John Williams music. It's so good. Gets you in the mood. It really fits those events. So you're starting to see the commercials and all of it, and there's just something that doesn't sit well with me. And so I guess this might seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but my general approach is going to be I'm not going to seek it out. It's not a definite hardcore boycott, but I'm not really all that excited about watching the Olympics because of where they're being hosted. And I will root for the team. I will hope that things go well. I will share great American moments on social media. I'm just not sure I want to sit there and watch the coverage and watch all these ads of all these companies that paid all this money, given the context. Now, we'll see if the American athletes do anything or take any stands. And I think on behalf of human rights and democracy, there should be some discomfort for the host country, for the host regime. We'll see how NBC decides to cover it and their approach. I do have a curiosity there. I'm just not sure if that curiosity is enough that I'm going to be actively tuning in myself. And I'm also just struggling to understand how some of the elite forces in our society, including in the world of sports and entertainment, were all thrilled that Major League Baseball, based on a lie and disinformation and political spin, pulled the All-Star game out of the state of Georgia, at the behest of the President of the United States, by the way, Biden was more committed to a boycott of Atlanta for the All-Star game than a boycott of the Olympics in China with the pandemic in Hong Kong and genocide. And I, I just struggle to reconcile the moral stance that a lot of people have embraced, either consciously or subconsciously. I'm not sure how they would defend it. I don't think it's defensible. And that also annoys me a great deal. I mean, you remember we devoted a lot of hours on this show to the Major League Baseball thing. But that couldn't stand, oh, because of democracy, we couldn't have the Major League, the All-Star game in Atlanta, Georgia. Again, rooted in so many untruths in that circumstance. But we'll have a Genocide Olympics hosted by Beijing. And it'll be televised live in the United States with a bunch of corporations pouring their money into it. I mean, you explain that to me. I know Laura Ingram made a similar point. A lot of people were clapping back on social media, missing the point. It's a question about a moral calculus. And that's what I've been wrestling with a little bit here ahead of the Olympics starting in early February. And if you disagree or have a different take, this is not one where I'm going to say I feel fully confident that I have hit exactly the right way to approach this from a consumer standpoint. I'm not sure. I want to be kind of humble about it, transparent about how I'm thinking. Put it out there into the universe, and you all do what you're going to do. Feel free to hit me up or send me a note or something. Agree or disagree, I think it's an interesting question. Hopefully we can all agree on the following thing. Go Team USA. Go kick their ass, especially the Chinese, as often as possible. Go for the gold in Beijing a few weeks from now. I will go for the gold on special report 
in just a few minutes on Fox News Channel with Brett and company around 640 Eastern Fox News Channel. See you there. Back here on the radio tomorrow, President Biden has his press conference long awaited. We will have coverage of that on The Guy Benson Show, and we will talk to you then. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.